Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. So when David had asked me to give the drosh today, about six weeks ago, he said I could do it on any topic that I wanted. By the way, he said I could take as long as I want, so I hope you packed a lunch. No, he, but he said I could do any topic I wanted, but he said a Shavuot theme would be great. But I don't have to do that. He mentioned it like three or four times. So, <laughs> And the problem was there wasn't a whole lot that I thought could be said about Shavuot that hadn't already been said. And I was thinking about it, and I was like, well, what should I say? I don't want to let David down. So I turned to the place we all tend to turn when we seek inspiration. I turned to the internet. (laughs) And I Googled it, and this short video popped up on YouTube called The Meaning of Pentecost. It didn't say anything that I or y'all don't already know. Uh, It mentioned the fact that, you know, Sukkot is, of course, the festival of weeks because Shavuot, I'm sorry, I keep saying Sukkot, Shavuot. Sukkot is next time. That uh, Shavuot means week, so it's the festival of weeks. You count seven weeks, 49 plus one, 50. Uh, Pentecost, of course, means 50th day. It's just the Greek way of saying Shavuot. And uh, how the, the Jews recognized Shavuot as the season in which God gave the Torah, the law. And how Christians, just like that, the spirit comes in and empowered the apostles to spread the gospel. Again, nothing that nobody here doesn't already know, but he did make an astute observation, something else I think everyone here already knows, but he said that it is by the Holy Spirit that God writes his law upon our hearts. So he tied the two together. Because Shavuot and Pentecost are really the same holiday, right? Now, I know that today uh, they're not called the same thing, that you know, probably the everyday Jewish person doesn't even know what Pentecost means. I think most uh, everyday Christians don't know what Shavuot is because they don't know Hebrew. But if they know that there's something called the Festival of Weeks, they don't make a connection between Shavuot and Pentecost. But when the video mentioned how God uses the Spirit to write the law upon our heart, I realized what today's message needed to be about. So today's message is about 2 Corinthians chapter 3, which you may be wondering, what does that have to do with Shavuot? Well, really, it doesn't have anything to do with Shavuot, but actually it does. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is, I think, often misconstrued as being about some type of a faded glory that Moses had and it's where we actually get the word Old Testament from I don't use the term Old Testament because that's not what Paul was trying to say I say Hebrew scriptures and Greek scriptures there's nothing old about the Old Testament but a lot of people do think that and they think things like Shavuot, Passover Sukkot are Old Covenant stuff that has no relevance to us today And a lot of them, I think, get that misunderstanding from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I actually think 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is one of the most important, if not the most important, chapter in all of Paul's writings. And I see myself as kind of a Pauline guy. When I study scriptures, I focus on Paul. He's my favorite writer, and a lot of his words are misunderstood. So let's dive into what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And by the way, you know how I said that Shavuot and Pentecost are the same thing, but one is a Hebrew word and one is a Greek word? Part of today's message, I'm going to be doing a little bit of an analysis of some translations. And I want to stay true to the translation so we in the Messianic movement, we like to use Hebraic terms, I think, as we should, because that's how we can reach uh, the Jews. We can be a voice to the Jews 
and help them understand that the Messiah is a Jewish Messiah. So we, I think rightfully, use his name Yeshua. We say Messiah. But Christ and Messiah are the same word, just one is Greek and one is Hebrew. And Yeshua and Jesus, I can explain how we got, how Yeshua became Jesus through the Greek, through the Latin and the English. Hebrew to Greek to Latin and English. And normally, we like to switch out those words when we quote the Bible, but because I'm going to be discussing the translation, I'm going to be rendering it exactly as it appears. So if you see words like Jesus or Christ, don't freak out, because it's the same Messiah for all of, all of us. So let's just read it together once. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some, letters of condemnation commendation to you or from you. You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all people, revealing yourselves that you are a letter of Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence we have toward God through Christ, not that we are adequate in ourselves, so as to consider anything as having come from ourselves, But our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death, engraved in letters on stones, came with glory, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was, How will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness excel in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory, because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Therefore, having such a hope... We use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not stare at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened for until this very day at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts But whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. But we all, with unveiled faces, looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the spirit. So this is a bit dense. It's a bit difficult to understand. I've asked people about this chapter because I actually talk about it a lot. And I've asked people, why did Moses wear a veil? And the answer typically is because the glory was fading. I've read the ESV study Bible, great study Bible. MacArthur study Bible. I have a lot of study Bibles. And they all seem to look at it from the same perspective. Even the Jewish New Testament commentary assumes that the glory on Moses' face was fading. And despite the fact that God called Moses his humblest of servants, he didn't want to show off the fact that the glory was fading, and so he wore a veil for the rest of his life. And I don't think that's what's happening here. But you can see that there can be some misunderstanding in this passage where people hear things like faded glory, wearing veils, old covenant, ministry of condemnation, ministry of death. And they use that as an excuse to believe that the Old Testament, as it's often called, is an interesting but mostly irrelevant and long prelude to the book of Matthew. And that's not what it is. Like I said before, the term Old Testament actually comes from this passage. Because you can see in 2 Corinthians 3.14, 
that it says, but their minds were hardened. For until this very day at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. Well, that's not Old Testament, that's Old Covenant. But if you look at the King James Version, it says Old Testament, which is the next slide. And just in case there was any confusion, the New King James Version puts it in title case for us. They actually capitalize so you know which Old Testament Paul was talking about. (laughs) But what they don't understand is the Old Covenant is not a collection of books. That is not what Paul is talking about at all. The problem with Paul is that he is very difficult to understand. If you don't believe me, you can ask Peter. Because in 2 Peter chapter 3, he says, And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of, of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures, to their own destruction. Now, if Peter, who was a contemporary of Paul, who came from his culture and spoke his language, thought Paul could be hard to understand, how much more can it be harder for someone living in the 21st century? But that's okay, because the same spirit that empowered the apostles to spread the gospel to all the nations can also empower us to understand what Paul has to say. So he talks about the new covenant. He talks about the old covenant. And what is he talking about? What is the new covenant? What is the old covenant? Well, I believe these two concepts are intrinsically linked. You can't understand the new covenant without understanding the old covenant. And you can't understand the old covenant without understanding the new covenant. But that doesn't really answer our question. Let's talk about the new covenant. When's the first time do you all think that the new covenant is expressly or explicitly mentioned in the Bible? Most people say Jeremiah 31, 31. I could be wrong, but I think that is incorrect. I don't think that's the first time there is a direct reference to this covenant we call the New Covenant. I could be wrong. I said it's, I think the Old and New Covenants are intrinsically linked in some way. And I think you're going to see that the New Covenant, I believe, is actually first stated, not in Jeremiah, but in the book of Exodus, expressly stated. Now, I said that Shavuot means weeks. Shavuot also is the plural for oaths, right? So you can actually think of Shavuot as the festival of oaths. And on Shavuot, it's traditional to read the Torah from the book of Exodus, starting in chapter 19. So let's have a look at that. I know it's not Shavuot yet, but we're going to have a spoiler for you guys. And I'm just going to be picking through some of the verses. This is just a a 35,000-foot look at what's going on here. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So what happens here? So if you read Exodus 19, you'll see that God brings Israel to Mount Sinai. And he says, if you will obey me, you will be my treasured people. And it says, all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then there's a bunch of thunder and lightning and a big cloud comes down over the mountain. And God gives what is often called the Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words, because Devari means words or things. And one of those words that God gave to the people was, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. 
I think it's pretty simple to understand. But the people were afraid. They did not want to hear the voice of God coming down from the mountain. So they said, "Uh, uh, Moses, we don't want to hear from God. You speak for us. Don't, Don't let God talk to us anymore. So after that, God started talking to Moses and gave him various instructions on things. And then we move to Exodus 24. And it says that after God instructed Moses, it says Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They took another oath. And then it talks about how Moses prepared some blood. And it says, then he, Moses, took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And the Lord took, I'm sorry, and Moses, not the Lord, took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So you heard it yourself three times, Israel said, everything that the Lord said, we will do. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. This is interesting. God tells Moses, you come up to me, and I will give you the tablets that I have written. So Moses went up to God. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. Now, you remember when I read 2 Corinthians chapter 3, I said the word glory a lot? There's actually this concept called uh, semantic satiation. It's where you say the same word so many times your brain forgets what it means. He says glory a lot in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Well, pay attention every time the word glory appears in this reading, all throughout this portion of Exodus that we're going through. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called the Moses out of the midst of the cloud, Now, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain. In the sight of the people of Israel, Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And this is the time in which God then gives Moses commandments about the construction of the tabernacle and the altar and the sacrifices. And then it says... And he, meaning God, gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. It actually says that God wrote on these first tablets with his own finger, not once, not twice, but three times. Twice in Exodus and once in Deuteronomy. By the way, a sidebar, do you know what Deuteronomy actually means? Deuteros nomos, it means second Torah. Because in Deuteronomy, Moses kind of summarizes everything that had happened, right? So you actually hear him summarize this incident in Deuteronomy. And for the first set of tablets, he repeats the fact that God gave him the tablets and wrote on it with his own finger. Now, if this were a Star Wars movie, there would be a slide transition And you would see the children of Israel at the base of the mountain wondering, whatever happened to this Moses fellow? And we all know what they did, despite the fact that they heard very clearly, you shall not make any type of idols. And despite the fact that Israel said not once, not twice, but three times, everything the Lord says we will do. We had, as us lawyers would say, the golden calf incident. And God tells Moses, to go down to the people because he knew about this golden calf. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, 
tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God. The tablets were the work of God. And the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. I don't think I would have done that, but he took the tablets of the covenant that God had made, the covenant where Israel promised three times that they would obey God, and they didn't. And Moses broke those tablets. So the next day, Moses tells the people that he's going to try to atone for their sin. This is in Exodus 32.30. And Deuteronomy, recounting this, actually says that Moses laid prostrate and didn't eat or drink for 40 days, asking God to forgive Israel for their sin. What Moses was doing is what biblical scholars, I think, would call propitiation, right? He was trying to appease God and be an atonement for the people. But there is a problem with this. Moses cannot do anything to atone for the sins of the people. There's only one propitiation, and that is Yeshua. First John chapter 2 actually uses this clunky word. It says Yeshua is our propitiation. There is one mediator between God and man, Yeshua, who gave himself as a ransom. Paul t- reminds Timothy in 1 Timothy 2.5. In Acts 4.12, it says there is salvation in no other name, only in Yeshua. Moses cannot save you from your sins. And by the way, there's a lot of metaphors in the scripture. Moses, oftentimes, is a metaphor for the law itself. But Moses tries his hardest. He even tells God, but now, if you will not, if you will forgive their sins, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Moses is trying really, really hard. And you'll see in Exodus 32 that God tells Moses, go ahead, go on up to the land. I'll send an angel ahead of you. I'm not going with you. And Moses pleads for God, come with us. Don't just leave us behind. Let's go ahead and read this. Exodus 32, 12. Moses said to the Lord, see you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with us. Send with me. Whom you will send with me, right? Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways. Moses asks God, show me your ways that I may know you. The word know in Hebrew, you got to be careful. Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived and bore a son, right? It means to have close, intimate relations with. And it's also the word for entering into a covenant relationship. Please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he, meaning God, said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he, meaning Moses, said to him, If your presence will not go with me, I'll stop. If if I were God, I'd say, Son, I already told you once, I'm going with you. But Moses, probably hungry after 40 days not eating, he wants to make sure God really means it. He's really coming with us. So, So Moses says it again. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall I 
it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct and I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses asks God, show me your ways that I may know you and come with us. And God says, I will do what you ask. And then there's this beautiful moment. Moses says, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Of course, in the Hebrew, it has his name. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand. And you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And this is the cleft of the rock where God is going to cover and protect Moses. And then Moses is going to get a glimpse of the revelation of who God is. In the very next verse, and now we're in chapter 34. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. You see, there's a difference here. The first set of tablets, God made himself. Now he's telling Moses, you cut these tablets. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone. And something a little bit different, at least in my eyes, happens. Because remember, in the previous chapter, It emphasizes how God's glory was on the mountain. The cloud was on the mountain, and Moses had to go up to God to get this covenant based on Israel promising they're going to obey God, and they didn't do it. Something different happens here. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. And proclaimed the name of the Lord. Stood with him. What does that mean? In Colossians, it says that Yeshua is the image of the invisible God. In John, Philip said to Yeshua, show me the Father. And Yeshua said, you've been with me this whole time. Don't you understand? When you, see the, when you see me, you see the Father. That was the Spirit again. Just kidding. The Spirit enables us to understand that Yeshua is the image of God. Why? Because when we sinned in that garden... Because of our sin, we can't go up to God. We can't do anything in our own power, in our works, to earn the righteousness to approach God. And that is the problem with the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant is a covenant of obedience, a covenant which they broke. But then God presents the solution. If we can't go to him... He 
will come to us. So I could be wrong, but I think this is a, um, a Christophany, which is a, another complicated word. It means a possible instance where Yeshua may have revealed himself outside of his time in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's what I think this is. And it says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This did not happen the first time. The first time Moses went up, he received tablets that were already made by God. God gives him a bunch of instructions about building the tabernacle. He comes down, he throws blood on the people. God doesn't proclaim his grace the first time, but he does this time. And Moses, I think, sensing an opportunity here, it says, and Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. He's asking God now, then please forgive us and come with us. And how does God respond? And he said, behold, I am making a covenant. The NASB and a few other translations actually says, I will make a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels such as not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the peoples among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. What does he mean when he says the people among whom you are shall see the work? Among whom? Yeah. But at this time, Israel isn't among different peoples. They were in their camps in the desert. He says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to do marvels that have not been seen in all the earth. And all the peoples around you will see the work of the Lord. What did Yeshua do for us on that cross when he died and then rose from the grave? And tying it back to Shavuot, because I want to make David happy, in Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit came in on Shavuot, on Pentecost, Remember, it says that people started speaking in different tongues. And it says that people from different places, you know, Greece and and Arabia, they heard the apostles speaking in their own language. And it was a miracle. Now, I know some guy, some smart pants said, oh, they're just drunk. How drunk do you have to be to talk in Arabic? Another word for Shavuot in the scriptures is the festival of the harvest. And Yeshua said that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. What I actually think Acts 2 is really about. By the way, people say Acts 2 proves that the believers were socialists. I don't think that's right. I don't think that's what's really going on, right? Because it says that in this time, there were a bunch of Jews in Jerusalem. Well, duh, of course there are Jews in Jerusalem. Why does it tell us that? It's saying that these were people from other parts, from the diaspora, coming into Jerusalem to stay. Why? Because it's Shavuot. It's one of the three pilgrimage festivals. You're supposed to schlep down to Jerusalem for the festival. That's why it says there were a bunch of Jews in Jerusalem. And these people from other parts of the known world at that time, who know these other languages, see this outpouring of the Spirit, and they hear the apostles speaking in different languages. And then it says that Peter rises up and he quotes from the scripture about Yeshua. 
And they all became believers. And here's where the socialism part comes in. They didn't want to go home, I believe. I think they wanted to stay and keep learning at the apostles' feet. That's why I think they were selling all their stuff and taking care of each other. They weren't communists. They just wanted to be able to finance, I think, their being able to stay in Jerusalem and to continue to learn from these apostles. And what I believe happened is that eventually they have to go home, right, see the wife and the kids. And when they did, new congregations started popping up all over the place because the harvest is plentiful. And now on Shavuot, which is also the feast of the harvest, God provided those laborers. And that's an awesome thing that was done. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. I could be wrong. But let's get back to Moses. And the Lord said to Moses, write these words. This is after God gave him some more instruction. Write these words for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. I have made a covenant. Which covenant? This is the one that he said he will make with all these wonders. You know, in my um, ESV Bible I have here, it describes most of chapter 34 as the covenant renewed. And by the way, you ever hear people call the new covenant the renewed covenant? Stop doing that. That's not what that means. It does mean new covenant. But I do think God did renew a covenant with Israel. I think he does it towards the end of 34. Write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there. So who's the he here? He was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. Who's the he? And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Now, if you were paying attention, you would have seen that when I quoted 2 Corinthians chapter 3, I used the NASB. For all of this, I've been using the ESV. And the reason why is because the ESV does not capitalize divine pronouns. Usually Bibles, when it talks about God, capital H for his, he, him, ESV doesn't want to do that because they don't want to insert their interpretation of who the speaker is. So they leave everything lowercase. That's why I chose to use the ESV. God does say he's going to be writing on the tablets. If you read this recounted in Deuteronomy 10.4, it says that God wrote on the tablets. But if you look at it carefully, it doesn't actually make that clear. Did God write on it with his finger? It never says that God wrote on the second set of tablets with his finger. Did God write on the tablets through Moses? There's something going on here where Moses is commanded to make a facsimile, so to speak, of the first tablets. God's word written on stone. Let's move on. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, With the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Now, when it says his face shone, it's not like my wife when she needs to put powder on her face. No, it's actually the word... I think it's caught on. It actually means to send out rays. His face was shining. Light was coming out of his face. I don't know how he didn't notice it, but light was coming out of his face. It doesn't actually say in the Hebrew that he had a glory on his face. It says his face was shining. But the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, uses a word based on the word doxa, which is where we get the word glory, that... Paul uses in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So they recognized that his face wasn't shining because he got exposed to radiation or something. His face was shining because of the glory of God. And when Aaron saw it, it freaked him out a little bit. 
But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him again. And I believe Moses wore that veil until the day he died. Did you see anything in there about the glory on his face fading? Did you notice that he would remove the veil when he spoke to God? And then with his face exposed and the children of Israel seeing his face shining, he would declare the word of God. And then when he was done, he put the veil, put the veil back over his face. Now, it does say in this passage the reason that his face was shining. It says that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Okay. But there's kind of a problem with that. Because before this whole chapter, Exodus 34, before Moses went back up on the mountain, back in Exodus 33, it says, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. So what's different with how God spoke to Moses in chapter 33 and before with how God spoke to Moses in chapter 34 going forward? And that was a slide, by the way. There's something more going on here. What is the glory on Moses' face? I believe the glory on Moses' face is the glory of the revelation of Messiah. Where God promised he will make a covenant declaring his grace. And he said this to Moses face to face. But then God says, put it on stone. So what is the New Testament then? I'm sorry, the New Covenant. King James confused me there. What is the new covenant? Now, when I asked when's the first time the new covenant is referenced, I heard someone throw out Jeremiah 31, 31. What does Jeremiah 31, 31 say? Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband unto them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. After those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their hearts I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. That doesn't mean know about him. It's like when Moses said that I may know you. It means to enter intimate covenant relationship. You won't have to tell your brother that anymore. For they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. And their sins I will remember no more. So, what is the old covenant and what is the new covenant? The first time, Moses had to go up to God in this cloud of glory on the mountain. After the children of Israel took an oath... Shavuot, that they would obey God. 
That old covenant was sustained by the faithfulness of Israel, which didn't last very long, did it? And as a result, it led to condemnation. I've known people in my life who think that they can ascend a mountain to God, who think that if I just obey the commandments, I will have right standing with God. There is no salvation in the old covenant. What is the new covenant? God came down to Moses and his glory stood next to him where God declared a covenant of grace that's based not on the works of Israel, but on the work of Yeshua. And it is sustained not by Israel's faithfulness, but by God's. And it leads not to condemnation, but to salvation. With that understanding... Let's turn back to Paul and see if we can figure out what he's talking about. We're going to read it again. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need as some letters of condemnation to you or from you? You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all people, revealing yourselves that you are a letter of Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. You see what he's doing here? Because God said he will write the words of his covenant on the tablets. The covenant that he writes, the the tablets he writes his word on. His law is the tablets of the heart. We just read that in Jeremiah 31, 31. He will write his law on our heart. Such is the confidence we have towards God through Christ. Not that we are adequate in ourselves so as to consider anything as having come from ourselves. But our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. The tablets of stone with those letters on it? Versus those words written upon your heart. That's the difference. But if the ministry of death engraved in letters on stones came with glory. Who's he talking about here? Moses. So that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses. All right. Pause. But it did say that the children of Israel could look. At Moses' face. When? When could they see his unveiled face? When he spoke the words of God. But then he covered it with a veil and they could no longer see it. The sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was. How will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness excel in glory. For if indeed what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. What I think he's saying there is they talk about, like, say, the stars have glory or light. And at nighttime you can see that light, but not in the daytime because the glory of the sun washes it out. Paul is comparing his ministry to Moses' ministry. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains in glory. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. And we are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face, so that the sons of Israel would not stare at the end of what was fading away. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. But we all, with unveiled faces, looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord, 
are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Now, how many times did Paul use some variant of the word fade? The sons of Israel couldn't look at the face of Moses because of the glorious face, fading as it was. Right? We have this on a slide. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains in glory. We're not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face, that the sons of Israel would not stare at the end of what was fading away. But we read together Exodus 34, and it doesn't say anything about the glory fading. But that's actually the most popular way of translating this in most mainstream Bibles. NASB, the New Living Translation, Amplified Bible, Holcomb's Christian Standard Bible, International Standard Version, the Berean Standard Bible, the Nearly Inspired Version, I'm sorry, the New International Version, has fading or fade away or fades away or fading away. But then you see some other translations, they don't say anything about fading. Passeth away or passing away, New King James, American Standard Version, and also the NIV. They kind of switched it out at one point. Brought to an end, ESV and the LSB. LSB, by the way, is the Legacy Standard Bible. Ever heard of the Legacy Standard Bible? Um, It's actually based on the NASB 95. Um, It's actually a pretty neat translation, but if you're afraid of the name of God in writing, don't buy it because it actually doesn't use the word the Lord. But it's a pretty neat translation. Set aside in the Christian Standard Bible, the Neo-Revisionist Standard Bible. I'm sorry, the, the NRSV. There's some controversy right now at the NRSV. Look it up. The NRSV UE um, kind of went woke. Abolished in the King James, done away in the King James later, etc., etc. Why are our translators struggling over this passage? Why can't they have some kind of consistency in how they translate it. Why do they say fading? So who here, by the way, has a Strong's Concordance? Okay, not as many as I was hoping, but that's okay because you can get it for free online. A bit of advice. Strong's is not a dictionary. Strong's is a concordance. It doesn't, the, the definitions in there aren't actually very great. They're actually glosses. This is a dictionary. In fact, this is the dictionary. It's my personal copy. This is called BDAG, the Bauer, Donker, Ardent, and Gingrich Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament and other early Christian literature. By the way, it's like 200 bucks. Um, This BDAG is what most biblical scholars actually refer to. You can actually get it on on the Logos website, you can pay for it. And it, it's not a concordance, it actually is a lexicon. And I don't say I'm agreeing with everything that's in there, but they do a really good job of studying what these words mean in the Greek. And when you look at the word faded, it's kartargeo, you'll see that none of those definitions means to fade. But the second definition, to cause something to lose its power or effectiveness. Ah. So what's really going on here? You ask someone, why did Moses wear a veil? Well, because he was trying to hide the fact the glory was fading. No. Moses didn't wear the veil because the glory on his face was fading. The glory on his face lost its effectiveness because Moses wore a veil. They're reading it backwards. This is also on a slide. You understand the distinction there? The glory never faded from his face. But if Moses is hiding the glory, the children of Israel can't stare at it. They can only hear it when God proclaims his word. 
So where do they get this word fading from? Did they just make it up? I believe that the translators are men of God who do their best. I also believe you should not rely on one translation. They all have problems, or they come from different manuscripts, or they have different theological biases. Just today, just to kind of show off, here, these are the three I like to use. This is, I like to use New King James, because it's based on the Textus Receptus, which is closer to the majority text. We have NASB, ESV. I also have a Christian Standard Bible. I have a King James Bible. I have a lot of Bibles. If you come to a Bible study at my house, you're going to see a lot of Bibles. So what I think is going on here, if you look at the next slide, it says, therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech, and we are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not stare at the end of what was fading away. They see that word end, and they think, oh, the glory was ending. So it must have been gradual. So it was fading to an end. I think that's a pretty crummy reason to wear a veil for the rest of your life. I don't want them to know that 25 years ago the glory faded. No. What does BDAG tell us? The word end, of course, is telos. It does mean for something to end. But it also means the goal. The goal towards which a movement is being directed, end, goal, or outcome. What do I think this means? Well, I said that I believe that the glory on Moses' face was a revelation of Messiah. Moses' ministry was actually about Yeshua. And I think Yeshua himself confirms this. He says in John 5, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. That is old covenant condemnation. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. And that's a new covenant revelation. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Wait a minute. Abraham saw Yeshua's day? Well, of course he did. There is no salvation in the old covenant. Salvation has always been from Yeshua, the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. And if Abel was saved, if Moses was saved, if David was saved, if our father Abraham was saved, they were saved by Yeshua. But it was a prefigurement. They were hoping on that expectation They didn't have a clear picture. He was veiled. But by faith, they understood this. And this is confirmed by Yeshua and by the apostles. Yeshua, remember the two fellows going on the road to Emmaus after the crucifixion and resurrection? And Yeshua sees them on the road, but they didn't recognize him. He says, what are you all talking about? Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who hasn't heard of the things that have happened these last few days? What things? About Yeshua, the Nazarene. He was a prophet, mighty indeed. We thought he was going to redeem Israel. And now these women are claiming they saw him alive. Do they believe he's resurrected? No. And he says to them, How foolish and slow of heart you are not to believe everything that the prophets have written. For did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And then it says, next slide, and beginning with what? Matthew? No, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. He, meaning Yeshua, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He wasn't just talking about specific prophecies. Yes, people know that there are specific prophecies about Yeshua. 
Much more than that. And in Acts 26, you can see they declare how they're only saying what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. And then next slide, and I'm going to move it along because David's giving me faces. It says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Does that mean that he ends the law? No. It's that our old friend tell us, for Messiah is the goal of the Torah for righteousness to everyone who believes. That's the Christian shippy version. And also Moses. It says that Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for the reward. So let's try to unpack the rest of this chapter real quick, and then we'll go to our own egg. And I'm going to try to do this fast. I want to give a little bit of context to why Paul wrote 2 Corinthians chapter 3. You'll see in the next slide, or two slides down, I should say. For we are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. And there's a footnote in the NASB that actually means corrupting, right? So Paul is having his authority challenged, and he is speaking boldly, and he is saying, we're not like these other people who corrupt the word of God. And then at the beginning of the next chapter, 2 Corinthians 4, he talks about how they have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. They refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. But by the opening statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience at the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. This is after 2 Corinthians 3. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That's the light, I believe, shining on Moses' face. Who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not of ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. With ourselves, your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, Yeshua Messiah. So Moses did not wear a veil so that Israel could not see the glory end. Moses wore the veil so that Israel could not see the goal of the glory, which is the revelation of Yeshua himself. And the last thing in this analysis of this text I want to talk about is the word boldness. It does mean bold, but it actually means more than bold. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech, and we are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not stare at the end of what was fading away. Bedag tells us that the word boldness is a use of speech that conceals nothing and passes over nothing. Outspokenness, frankness, plainness. So what I think Paul is saying in the Christian shippy version of 2 Corinthians, but if the ministry of death engraved in letters on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, which had lost its effectiveness, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness excel in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory. Because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which has lost its effectiveness was with glory, much more that which remains in glory. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great plainness of speech, which also is boldness. And we are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not stare at the goal of what had lost its effectiveness. Paul uses great plainness of speech, and he preaches about Messiah openly. Not like Moses, who preached about Yeshua behind a veil. So what's going on here? And I'm not going to do the rest of the slides. If you read Moses, and if all you see are laws and interesting stories, and you think, if I keep these laws, I will have right standing with God, you are stuck in an old covenant mentality. But if you read Moses and the prophets, and you see that it's actually about Yeshua, 
then you have a new covenant perspective because it's all about Yeshua. The old covenant, there is no salvation. But you take those laws, which by the way, the word became flesh, and you put it in your heart. You will see God in the person of Yeshua, and you will gain salvation, not in your faithfulness, but in the faithfulness of God. Shabbat shalom.